So, you want to save the world with clean energy? Make money doing it? Confused about the economic and technical realities of residential and commercial solar, batteries, heat pumps, EVs? Want the real-world scoop on new energy technologies, not manufacture hype? Then tune in to the Weekly Energy Show, hosted by Barry Cinnamon. Insights from Barry's 40-plus years in the solar and energy industry will help you understand the future ways we'll generate and consume energy. And now, here's Barry. Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, fusion power breakthrough headlines have been in all the media. PBS calls it a game changer for climate. I say, not in our lifetime. CBS calls it one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. Okay, I can think of a lot more impressive scientific feats. Our friends at Canary Media are the closest to reality. They basically say that fusion power breakthrough thrills physicists, but won't power your home soon. I'm even less enthusiastic, and here's why. The experiment that everybody's talking about blasted a tiny pellet of hydrogen with lasers. It wasn't just one laser. It was 192 of the most powerful lasers in the world. Now, the power of these 192 lasers was 2.05 megajoules. And after blasting these, this tiny pellet with 2.05 megajoules, I ran it off to two, three megajoules of energy was released. Wow, mega. So almost one megajoule of, of net energy was produced. This is the future of clean, limitless energy, according to Forbes. Mega MAGA. Now, I hope you're sitting down. Let's do a bit of basic math. One megajoule is equivalent to 0.27 kilowatt hours. Now, I hate to break it to you, but that's not a lot of energy. It's enough to run a 100-watt light bulb, if you can still find one, but it would run that 100-watt light bulb for 2.7 hours, or enough to drive a standard electric vehicle 500 feet. Not a single media story mentioned that one megajoule is a tiny bit of energy. Now, let's just kind of dig into some high school physics here. One joule is the amount of energy equal to a force of one newton acting through a distance of one meter. And a megajoule is a million joules. So I kind of did some calculations here. One megajoule is equivalent to one ounce of gasoline. Now, that's all the energy in the gasoline is used. Actually, when you're burning in a gasoline in a car, you might only get 30% of the energy out. But a megajoule is an ounce of gasoline. It's less than a shot. So just for comparison purposes, we already have a hydrogen fusion reactor, and it happens to be at a safe distance of 92 million miles away from us. Now, this hydrogen fusion reactor can generate the exact same amount of energy in an hour from a single solar panel pretty much anywhere on Earth. You can put that solar panel anywhere on Earth, and you're going to get the same amount of energy out of this fusion that we saw from this great fusion experiment. Now, let's get back to this fusion power breakthrough. The National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore Labs, it's in California, it's about the size of a sports stadium. The entire facility consumed 300 megajoules of energy for this test. Yes, that's a little bit more, right? 300 ounces of gasoline, eh, you know, like a couple of gallons. But only two megajoules of this 300 megajoules of energy actually went into the hydrogen pellets. That's how much energy the pellet was blasted with. And it netted one megajoule of energy, total of three. 
So not counting the 300 megajoules for all the supporting equipment, this national ignition facility, the fusion breakthrough, they can generate 10 laser shots a week. Obviously, we're not kind of really up to mass production yet. So to put things in perspective, we have this huge test facility. It can generate the equivalent of 10 ounces of gasoline a week. It still requires 300 gigajoules of supporting equipment for these tests. And there's no practical way yet for us to convert that released fusion energy into electricity. So it's nice that we can show that we can get positive energy out, but you got to make a power plant. So to generate practical fusion power, we really need to net an energy gain of a million times greater than these latest fusion tests, a million times more. Then we need to design and build a complete fusion power plant. It's much more complicated than existing nuclear fission plants. Okay, you say, all we need to do is scale up this fusion power plant from this little test. Well, candidly, let's kind of go through it a little bit. That's going to take a lot of scaling. It's going to take a lot of time. All right. So to make a practical nuclear fusion power plant, you're going to start with a nuclear fission plant because many of the same nuclear containment and control issues are needed for a fusion plant. The tricky thing is the nuclear fusion fuel has to be constantly fed into this chamber where the lasers are blasting these fuel pellets. It's not an issue with nuclear fission because with nuclear fission, you just have the fuel rods, which is basically uranium, and when those get close together and there's nothing between them, they get really hot. You have control rods that kind of go between them to moderate the nuclear reaction. But nuclear fission, it's really simple. You just put these rods in a pool of water and they start boiling, making steam. But with fusion, we need to have these pellets constantly fed into this laser chamber, and then the laser has to constantly blast them, maybe 10 or 20 times a second every time there's a new pellet that goes in, to constantly ignite this tiny little fusion reaction. It's kind of like you're lighting matches. Boom, 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 boom. So it's a machine gun effect. Just imagine little hydrogen pellets constantly getting fed into this chamber. They get blasted, and then heat comes out. Now, obviously, you need to keep the lasers away from the rest of the equipment in the power plant. You don't want these fancy lasers to get damaged by steam and heat. And then the heat from this reaction has to be captured in some kind of fluid. Now, sometimes you use water, sometimes you're using liquid sodium or some kind of liquid salts, and then that fluid is then run through a heat exchanger and that generates steam. Sometimes you have these things separated because the fluid can get radioactive, and that, that may also happen with nuclear fusion. I'm not positive about that. All right, once you've got this steam, you're able to generate electricity. It's just like a regular power plant. But the tricky thing is this fusion fuel is, although it's basically just seawater, which sounds... Obviously, it's really safe and abundant. we got plenty of seawater, and it's water's rising, so it's even closer. But anyway, the fusion fuel doesn't use regular hydrogen. It uses two isotopes of hydrogen called deuterium and tritium. So hydrogen, most abundant element in the universe. It's got one proton and one electron, tiny little element, first one on the periodic table. Deuterium, do, is two. There's two nuclei inside that. You have one proton and you also have one neutron so it's a little bit heavier that sometimes they call water that has deuterium in it heavy water so it's basically behaves the same as regular hydrogen but it has one more neutron one out of every 5,000 hydrogen atoms is deuterium so you know there's plenty of hydrogen atoms in the world it's just a huge huge number now tritium 
is one step beyond deuterium. It's a hydrogen isotope that has two neutrons. So you have a proton and you have two neutrons. It's even heavier. Tritium is radioactive. It breaks down. And when it breaks down, it emits neutrons. It's not common in nature. So we have to make the tritium for these fusion power plants by irradiating, actually they irradiate lithium. Yeah, the lithium that we use for batteries. Heck, maybe 150 years from now, we can be recycling our lithium batteries and using them in nuclear fusion power plants. Who knows? But it's the same basic lithium. But you just don't have deuterium and tritium. you got to get the deuterium out of the water. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how you separate that. And then you, you have to manufacture, you have to breed the tritium isotope in this nuclear fusion plant. You're not going to just like you know, put it on a truck and move it around. It comes from the plant itself. So... We talked about the design of the reactor. We talked about the fuel. Talk a little bit about radiation and safety. I read some of these reports where it's like, oh, you know, it's just water. Everything's really safe. No, no, no. Fusion reactors generate a lot of neutron radiation. When you blast that hydrogen pellet with the lasers, you're going to get heat. You're also going to get neutrons emitted. So you got to be careful of that. We also use neutron radiation to make the tritium. And once again, those neutrons are coming from the reaction itself. So imagine blasting this pellet with lasers. You get heat coming out. You get neutrons coming out. You, you use those neutrons to blast lithium, and the lithium is going to somehow create more tritium, which you, you can then use for future pellets. The thing is that neutron radiation is kind of the worst radiation out there. It's the most severe and dangerous radiation to living things. Remember the concept of the neutron bomb 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, you know, back in the Cold War days? The concept of a neutron bomb is you have this bomb. It doesn't really blow things up. It doesn't break buildings. It doesn't damage vehicles, but it kills everybody that's exposed to this neutron radiation. So the shielding and safety equipment is obviously needed, maybe not to the same degree as fission power plants, but fusion power plants are going to need a lot of safety equipment. And also what happens when you have a lot of this neutron radiation flowing around inside the power plant, a lot of the equipment itself becomes radioactive because it's being irradiated by neutrons. And this happens with all nuclear power plants. That's why it's so hard to decommission an existing fission power plant because even though you might take out the nuclear fuel rods, a lot of the equipment, the pipes, the pumps, the structures inside that containment vessel are now very radioactive. So the radioactive issue of the equipment, there's a radioactive issue of neutrons being emitted, and then we've got to actually somehow make the tritium out of lithium by blasting the lithium with neutrons. So that's not so simple as just, you know, uranium fuel rods. So going from this first successful positive fusion energy generation test, which is really cool, right? you know, fundamentally really cool, to get to a functional and safe fusion power plant, which is going to save the world by stopping climate change and reversing global warming, how long is it going to realistically take? Well, I see estimates of a few decades, but those estimates, I'm sorry, they're completely wrong. It takes 20 years right now from start to finish, at least 20 years from start to finish, to build a single standardized commercial nuclear fission power plant. It's not five years, it's over 20 years. And new designs of power plants have to be carefully tested, certified, and you need regulations for those. That's going to take at least... 10 years just to kind of create the regulations and then you've got to certify these new fusion power plants which don't even exist yet. So we're at least 20 years away 
from having a practical prototype laser fusion power plant. We had a little test here, but now we've got to kind of somehow scale that up. And 20 years is a, I think it's pretty conservative, but it's going to take 20 years to kind of figure out how to put all those other parts together to take this nuclear power plant, nuclear fission plant, take out the fission stuff, put in lasers and containment vessels and a different kind of heat exchanger and kind of build that power plant. Because you have to have a prototype power plant that can reliably and safety generate power on a small scale before we can start deploying them on a large scale to save the planet. So if everything works perfectly the way it is right now, we don't run into any kind of engineering, technical, safety, fuel source problems, that adds up to at least 50 years, best case, before we build the first practical, certified, ready-to-replicate nuclear fusion power plant. And then, got to figure, you know, you're not going to be kind of rubber stamping these things out right away. It's going to take another 20 years, like nuclear fission plants, to start rolling these plants out around the country, around the world. I'm just kind of looking at it realistically based on what's happening with nuclear fission, based on the distance we are from this little successful fusion test to actually building a power plant. It's at least 70 years. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's at least 70 years. So if everything goes right, in the year 2100, we could have as much fusion power generation as we now have this year, 2022, with solar. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I think this is a kind of long-term fusion R&D. It's really useful. It's a very cool concept. It's going to work in 70 years. And we need to do this R&D. The government's got to support this R&D. I'm happy that the government's crowing about it. I'm just a little bit unhappy that the press is running away with saying that this is a solution to our problems because that actually creates a bigger problem. But doing this R&D for direct air CO2 capture, for carbon capture and sequestration, for new ways of storing energy, all really important. But when it comes to fusion, we don't have 50 years. We don't even have 10 years to dramatically increase the deployment of clean power plants before the Earth's climate changes drastically and probably irreversibly. And these clean power plants, it's wind and solar. That's what's working. That's what we can deploy in huge amounts. Adam Stein is the Director of Nuclear Energy Innovation at the Climate Research Center Breakthrough Institute. Here's what Adam Stein said. He said, we need to deploy as much clean energy as we can right now with the technology we have. We can't wait for fusion to enter the commercial space to do that. That doesn't mean that fusion won't be very important later, but it still needs a lot of policy help. So looking at all this stuff in reality, cool test, but let's look at it from a practical and realistic standpoint. We need to continue this long-term R&D, long-term R&D and fusion, carbon capture and sequestration, direct air capture of CO2, new ways to store energy on a long-term basis. While at the same time, right now, we have to put the pedal to the metal and deploy as much solar and wind power as the globe possibly can, as every technologist, every society, every country can deploy these as fast as possible. So basically, we need to transition away from fossil fuels. If we wait 50 more years before we have this prototype fusion plant going, boy, the Earth's going to be three degrees hotter and the sea levels are going to be many feet higher. So looking at this from a realistic perspective, by 2100, year 2100, 67 years from now, we need to keep the global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees C. It's a long shot right now, as you all know. But by that time, maybe, just maybe, we'll have fusion reactors ready to deploy. But in the meantime, 
over this next 77 years, we need to deploy as much solar, wind, batteries, hydrogen as we possibly can to fuel our economy. Otherwise, we're going to be sitting in an overcooked globe in 2100 and sea levels are going to be very different. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen at that point. So there's a way to do it. We need to kind of do everything at once, but we don't want to stop doing the things that are working, which is solar, wind, things like that with the hopes that there's going to be some miraculous new way of generating energy in 50 or 100 years. All right, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Energy Show. Barry wants everyone to benefit from clean energy. So if you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.